Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. As part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, the hyperlocal print magazine I launched last year with Michelle McCaffrey, I want to give a podcast shout out to the WT Enterprise Center and local farmers insurance agent Leslie Massey. You can learn more and subscribe to Brick and Elm at brickandelm.com. Today's guest is Suzanne Talley. Suzanne is the executive director of the 100 Club of the Texas Panhandle. This is a local nonprofit that provides assistance to the families of peace officers and firefighters who are killed in the line of duty. Now, before that, Suzanne spent nearly 17 years with Coffee Memorial Blood Center, and she was its executive director for the last few years of that job. So we talk about her career. It, it was a career in marketing, the local nonprofit world. We talk about the impact of the pandemic on the Blood Center, the origins of the 100 Club, and how it helps first responders. So there's a lot in this episode. Here's Suzanne Talley. Suzanne Talley, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I know we've been trying to do this recording for at least a month now. That We've means several it's got to be away. good, right? It's got to be good because it's, uh, it seemed kind of snake bit. So um, I'm, I'm happy to finally talk to you. And I want to start with you the same way I start with all of my guests and okay. ask how you ended up in this area in the first place. So what brought you to Amarillo? I was born and raised in Amarillo. And uh, I, without revealing my age, uh, I've been here all my life. <laughs> okay. Uh, I was born at the old Northwest Texas Hospital. Well, that sort of reveals your age. <laughs> yes, but. there you go. I grew up here on the north side of town, went to Mesa Verde. They yeah. closed elementary school at Mesa Verde, uh, fourth through fifth. So went to Robert E. Lee, then right. Travis Junior High, where I was a cheerleader. And it was junior high then, not middle school like it is now. And then I graduated from Paladar High School. Okay. Got my start at Amarillo College and had a great job offer that, you know, when you're young and dumb and you think I should quit my education and take this great job. And so did that and worked for Santa Fe Energy and Accounts Payable for almost a year. And then they moved the company out of town to Houston and they laid off the last eight people hired, which was oh, me. Which included you. And then I was in this great apartment with a new car thinking I was all that. And then I was going to school at night. Okay. So it took a little longer and I did not finish my bachelor's degree and decided on my bucket list I would go back to school and get my bachelor's before I was 50. Hmm. And so I did. And so I went to Wayland Baptist because that's where the majority of my things would transfer. I went to in-class classes there and uh, finished my degree. And so uh, was that pretty recently then uh, that you finished that? Not too long okay, ago, so yes. You were a uh, one of those returning students. I was. The and colleges I, love because yes. they're always great students. <laughs> yeah. and I take I it to, seriously. I had to go to the in-class because I thought, oh, my gosh, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. But uh, I did it, and I signed up for accounting, too, after I hadn't had accounting one for 30-something years. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I was thinking. Well, was and then statistics, and then I found myself at almost 50 begging for a tutor online. Mm -hmm which my neighbor, uh, Kathy Reekin at the time, ended up being not only um, a paralegal, but she was also a CPA. So she tutored me through that, and I threw her a big party afterwards. <laughs> All right. So you, you did get your bachelor's degree? I did, uh, in business administration with a minor in uh, healthcare administration. Okay. And so when you were you know, at Emerald College, in college the first time, um, and, and had some job opportunities, 
obviously you entered college with sort of a, a plan. You you wanted to do Fun. something. Yeah. Is that what it was? Or did you have <laughs> that some was sort my, of no, that specific was, career in mind? Or I, You know, I thought I wanted to uh, program computers, and I realized my personality was not one to sit in a dark room and not talk to people all day. Hmm. So I started with that. And then uh, I went to Amarillo College so long ago that they actually had sororities and fraternities wow. there then. Pledged a sorority, and then my major changed a little from school to fun. Got it. So that's pretty much what I did there. So I, I know that uh, that you've had a pretty diverse career, though, even up until you you know got your your bachelor's degree. So talk to me about what your you know your your work experience ended up being over the next few years. Uh, well, I started as a roller skating not blading, skating, mm-hmm. car hop at Sonic Drive-In when they used to have one over by Tesco's the High School. and I remember that one. And that was a lot of fun. That was probably my most fun job. And then um, kind of transitioned when I got a job at the Credit Bureau of Amarillo, and I started doing marketing and public relations and business development for them at a very young age and loved it. Hmm. And that was kind of a turning point for me. I liked being out calling on the customers and, you know, working on win-win relationships and seeing how I could help them and they could help me. And and I just fell in love with that. And so throughout my career, I worked at Santa Fe Energy, as I told you, and then I worked for an organization called PPROA, Panhandle Producers and Royalty Owners Association. I did that and I worked at Cedar Creek Hospital as their marketing director. Then I went to um, KVI-ITV, loved that job, met a lot of wonderful people there, learned a lot about TV and advertising, mm-hmm. and I started the WB Network here, Okay. and then I went into sales in KVI as well and ended up being promotions manager there, helping added value on our larger clients. Okay. What could we do to, to um, make this more enhanced over the competition and make that a win-win? And then after six and a half years, I had an opportunity to go back to Coffee Memorial where I had worked about six months before, and it just wasn't a good fit for me at that time. But I started there marketing and public relations, loved it, spent 18 years there, Uh, my all-time favorite job probably. Okay. And uh, it's the people. It's the people on the inside. It's the donors on the outside. It's all the organizations that want to help others and give of themselves and for little in return besides a t-shirt. And so that was a huge blessing and led that team through a pandemic, which Mm -hmm. thank the Lord, I was blessed with such amazing people. And uh, we walked through that. They're still walking through it today. And um, just wonderful to see how people come together in this part of the area and part of the country. So I'm interested in the fact that you were in, you know, the marketing world and spent time in a for-profit setting, you know, at KVII. Mm-hmm. Pro News 7, and then also in a nonprofit setting with Coffee Memorial doing the marketing there. Um, because those are very, there's some parts of marketing that, that overlap where you're you're promoting a, an organization right. or a business, but there's there's also some differences when you've got that divide between for-profit and nonprofit. So tell me a little bit about, about that. The bottom line is it's all about relationships, whether it's for-profit or nonprofit. In the world, we're really all about relationships. And I think when you build win-win relationships where you're giving and taking to help one another out, it's always going to be a win. And that translated very well to all of my contacts, especially trans- 
referred very well to Coffee Memorial. Mm-hmm. Um, it was fun to go out and call on those people. And then when I moved to coffee, I just called on them for something right. different instead of, you know, it was still helping them. I still helped them reach their goals as an advertiser to drive, you know, business to their organization, their companies. And then when I went to coffee, I just took those relationships and they opened their doors to us. And back to the relationships, if you build build them where they're reciprocal, they last for a lifetime and you help one another out. And that's what I love about living in this part of the country. We yeah. all help one another out. Tell me, yeah, tell me what, you know, what you learned about the people here, whether you're working with businesses, whether you're working with blood mm-hmm. donors, whether you're working with, um, you know, supporters of the nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Being in that world, what has it taught you about Amarillo and Amarillo people, Amarillo businesses? This is a great place to live and work. And we, um, just like I told the Oklahoma Blood Institute when we aligned with them, which was the right time with the right people um, for the right reasons. And we we would need to do that same thing again today if we mm-hmm. had to do it all over again. It was its absolute best thing for our community blood center. But the people here are different. We think differently. We stick together. We stand beside one another. And when there's a call for help, we all answer. And I learned that through the pandemic. For example, many of the companies that hosted blood drives for Coffee Memorial on a regular basis that we relied on, Blue Cross Blue Shield, AIG, Excel Call Center, mm-hmm. um, Atmos Energy, all those people were working from home. Right. They didn't have all the employees right. in one spot anymore. And so there went hundreds of units of blood. Churches, historically, are notorious for not having blood drives, not because they don't want to, but because all their space is utilized, all their people are Mm -hmm. utilized. And when people are at church, they're usually there for a reason, and then they leave. But um, our church has stepped up in a big way, and a Hillside Christian especially saved us one month, or we would not have had enough blood for our community. And they hosted a blood drive once a week for a whole month. And they did it with excellence. And then Trinity Fellowship came on board, and then Redeemer came on board, and it just lit a fire under our churches, and they saw us through the pandemic with excellence. And, and I think with something like that, once one church sees it, another church is doing it. Absolutely. Whether it's cooperation or competition, they want to be doing yes, it too. Yes, they want it. And a lot of times, just like people don't donate blood because they don't know there's a need, people haven't joined the 100 Club because they don't know there's mm-hmm. a need. And once you tell them, hey, we have a need for blood, they're going to say, hey, I'll do it. That's the number one reason they don't give. They've never been asked. Same with the 100 Club. It just translated perfectly. They don't know there's a 100 Club, and they've never been asked to join. And once they learn about it, they come on board, support our first responders. So before we talk about the 100 Club, I still have a couple of questions about uh, your experience with the Blood Center, because I know that's uh, um, something that a lot of people, if they... Our blood donors have a lot of familiarity with Mm -hmm. if they are not, don't know about it at all. Right. Um, But tell me about that process of aligning with uh, the Oklahoma Blood Institute and sort of how that happened and why it was so good. Because Coffee Memorial was sort of independent before that. Is that right? We were. Yes, we were. It started with, I'll make a long, a really long story short, it started with Obamacare Mm -hmm. and a lot of people that were relying on their emergency rooms for indigent care because they didn't have benefits, suddenly have benefits. 
it put a stress on the system. Okay. There weren't enough physicians to handle all those people. It meant like an influx of, of patients then, Yes, right? that now have insurance right. that okay. were visiting an ER. And so all these people had insurance and they had nowhere to go. And so then you saw the ERs popping up everywhere because that was how we were going to deal with you know, all the people that suddenly had insurance and needed health care. That market grew really fast. Yes, it did. And so same with hospitals. They had an influx of patients. Suddenly they're providing more care for less money. And so that was a strain on them. So we went as a blood center and a blood supply. We went from being a life-saving drug to a commodity that could be negotiated. Because those hospitals, rightfully so, they had to do everything they could to cut costs to provide the best quality of care for the less, the least money. Right. And so corporately, those entities started looking for the lowest possible price. Okay. So Most, if they can get blood from some other place cheaper yes. than they can get it from here in Amarillo, they'll right. do that. And, and there's a fine line with selling blood that's donated for free. Right. And we are all nonprofit blood centers, but... It's not drawn for staff that works for free. It's not processed by staff that works for free. When you get to the hospital, it's not administered by people who work for free. Plus, you have to test it and process it Mm -hmm. to make sure it's safe for a patient to receive. So there is what's called a reimbursement fee that we charge to the facilities for those units of blood. And if you're a local independent blood center drawing 30,000 units a year, and that's how many supplies you're buying, and you're competing with, say, the Red Cross, who doesn't have a blood division here, only out of state, or another larger entity out of state, then they can offer a lower reimbursement rate because right. their supply cost is less. Absolutely. They're drawing one in three million units yeah. a year, you know. So we first went from 104 employees to 65 through attrition and mm. just not replacing them. Cut our marketing budget. That's always the first to go. So I really relied on relationships then. And then when those contracts that we secured over the larger blood providers came back around, we had nowhere to go without affecting potency and quality of a unit of blood, which is life-saving and there's no substitute. And so we had to find someone that was like mind, like values, like business practices, and align with them or we would not have a community blood center in our market. And so the Oklahoma Blood Institute really came in and and uh, partnered with us. It's kind of a hybrid partnership. We still own the building there, mm-hmm. and I say we because I stayed yeah, well, on. I mean, obviously, I stayed you're on not as we a consultant. Anymore, yeah. yeah, I stayed on a consultant till June of 22. So okay. technically, I'm still there. But um, it was the right thing to do with the right people at the right time, and it secured the future of our community blood center here where blood wasn't going to be drop shipped to the hospital. Right. You always have that 24 hours. The blood that you donate here is still likely it to stay here. here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Unless there's an emergency somewhere else and we have an excess, okay. it's going to stay here. And w- one more question I had, and I'm only asking you because I've got you available. That's um, okay. One of the things that has been really interesting to me is that, you know, early on during the pandemic, Coffee Memorial Blood Center started offering antibody tests right. along with its donations. Right. And when you started doing that, I thought, okay, that's really smart because that's going to bring in people who maybe have never given blood before, but do want to know if they've had COVID. You know, all right. of us were Absolutely. like, had this cough. It's was like, that I don't know. Was? Yeah. yeah. Um, which seems to me like a really strong marketing move. And I wonder if you thought of it that way or if it was just kind of a best practices, something that everybody else was doing. Um 
But just acknowledging from the outside, that seemed really smart to me. Well, back to that win-win, Jason. So it was both. It was a great market marketing campaign to let people know if they'd had it or not. Mm-hmm. But also something that was a very effective treatment initially was convalescent plasma. Convalescent plasma was plasma that was donated by someone who had, had recently yeah. had COVID that had a high level upon titer of um, antibodies. And that could be very healing in someone that was battling COVID at the time. So not only did it help people know whether they had had it or not, it qualified them for us to convert them to that life-saving product that was so needed at the time. Now, you know, things have progressed. That's still needed, but you have your monoclonal antibodies right. and you have some other effective treatments. And so that's not as as vastly needed as it was then, but that was the reason we started that. And I know it continues to be a, you know something mm-hmm. that the blood center markets. I, th- I think they've recently upgraded that test from what I understand. They actually did upgrade that, and then the need for CCP has come back, that mm-hmm. convalescent plasma. The FDA has changed the... Um, tighter level. And so a lot that we had available is no longer meets that requirement. And so they have to get, you know, someone with higher tighter of antibodies. And so it's fascinating, but I didn't know a darn thing about antibodies or convalescent plasma. And I was the executive director at that time. And I will tell you, um, Casey Stoughton and Dr. Milton over there, they educated me and they partnered with me and they saw us through that. And I'm forever grateful. Well, and I I think that's the case with a lot of nonprofits. A lot of business owners didn't know anything about disinfecting or cleaning or you know, management of remote working, all that stuff. So everybody had to become experts in a lot of different things over the past couple of years. They did. And you know that it took all of us. I mean, it took a village to uh, navigate through that. And we're still learning and navigating. So so um, listeners probably have understood this at this point, but you no longer are the executive director at the Blood Center. Um, right. You've recently moved into another executive director role at another nonprofit, the 100 Club. And so I wonder if you can tell me about, you know, before we really get into what the 100 Club is and what it does, tell me about making that move after, you know, so many years in one place. I did not know what the 100 Club was, and they showed up to volunteer at coffee at the invitation of firemen and policemen to help with our Boots and Badges kickoff Mm -hmm. and our Boots and Badges game. And I learned about them, and I became on, I became a member on the board there, and then eventually the president of the board of that organization, and that's how I learned about it. And I just was fascinated with their work. And to be honest, it was it was a tough year at Coffee, mm-hmm. um, navigating through the COVID pandemic, learning about the convalescent plasma, starting that program, and then I got COVID myself in November of 2020. Okay, and uh, it was a tough go. I think I worked four working days in November. It turned into COVID, viral pneumonia in both lungs. I did not have to go to the hospital. I did everything they told me to do and was able to stay at home, but it was tough. It was tough. lucky. Um, Coming back and kind of having brain fog and some residual symptoms, and it was just a hard go. And I was working about 60, 70 hours a week, and so was my team. And it reached a point with all the regulations and the conference calls and the Zoom calls and the meetings that were necessary and vital because of that highly regulated industry that I felt like I was losing a little bit of sight of my people. Yeah. And they were the most important thing. And so 
rather than being out and engaging with my employees and the donors and the calling on the organizations that were so graciously supporting us and my team that was working night and day, it was hard. It was really hard. And I just felt like it wasn't um, a good fit for me anymore. And so I still love the mission. I will support Coffee Memorial for the rest of my life. I stayed on as a consultant for a year Mm -hmm. to see that transition. Brad Duggan with Bluebell, who'd been a partner of mine for many years for Dairy Month in June, providing ice cream and doing events for us. He's my successor there. He leads with heart. He loves his people. And he's going to do a fabulous job. And I feel very confident in that. So tell listeners about the 100 Club. So um, as my friend Steve Parrish says, um, sometimes when God opens the door, you have to get out of the boat and walk on the water. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a big change for me to go from a large facility that I was managing, several vehicles, 54 mm-hmm. employees, to being in an office by myself. Right. But um, it's a fairly small organization. Just yeah, in terms just of me. Overhead, you know? <laughs> just me, and then um, we have fourteen amazing board members. Several of them previous first responders that have retired. But the One Hundred Club was started in 1952 in Detroit, Michigan. There was a car dealer who had a police officer who helped him with security on his lot. He worked for the Detroit Police Department. He knew he had a pregnant wife that was at home with complications, not working. That officer was shot and killed in the line of duty. So this car dealer asked 100 of his closest friends and associates to give $100. They took $10,000, which in 1952 is a lot lot of of money. money. It's a lot of money today. (laughs) Right, exactly. They paid off her mortgage. They started a college fund for the child, and she had enough to live on until that line of duty death could be investigated and those benefits settled. Um, and that's how it started from there. And then slowly but surely across the country, businessmen and women would pull their funds together and do fundraising events, and they would form a 100 club in their market. The largest one in the U.S. is in Phoenix. The largest one in Texas is in Houston. And they're all independently formed and founded after the same pattern in okay. Detroit. Ours started here in 2004, became a 501c in 2006, it was founded by uh, Tim Williams, who was a sergeant for the Emerald Police Department, was a SWAT commander there, went to Randall County, went to Pantex, and he just retired uh, from Randall County. Anyway, he went to Houston, and he was talking to their SWAT team, and they were talking about the 100 Club. It helped them with these equipment needs that they couldn't secure with other funds. And so he came back and had a meeting with Vance Reed of Coors and the Cowboy mm-hmm. Club, and Vance got together with Tim and Todd Mayfield, Ronnie Mankin, Chris Reed, and some other gentlemen, and they pulled their funds together, and they started a 100 Club here in Amarillo. Started in Amarillo, and in 2011, it expanded to the top 26 counties. People pay $100 a year to be a member. Businesses less than 25 employees pay $250 to be a member every year. Corporations pay $1,000 a year. Okay. Goes into the bank, you don't get a lot for your money except a sticker for your car that mm-hmm. says you stand behind firemen and police. And then when a tragedy occurs, such as a firefighter or certified peace officer is killed in the line of duty, we take $20,000 to their family in the first 24 hours. Okay. We No questions asked, no expectation of repayment, no specifications what it's spent on. We're not trying to be anyone's life insurance policy. We're just trying to stand in the gap 
until that investigation can be happened and their benefits secured. Right. Same if they're injured in the line of duty. For example, Hamilton Stanfield, an APD officer, he and Michael Bishop were securing a scene of a fire. Smoke had reduced visibility. They were sitting in their car on New Year's Eve and just doing what they were called to do. And a drunk driver hit Hamilton Stanfield in his driver's side going about 65 miles an hour. Pinned him in his car, broke his back, head injury, Mm -hmm. knocked his car into Michael Bishop's. Michael Bishop sustained a head injury. And then Hamilton went to the hospital, had surgeries, ended up throwing a blood clot from his lung, his leg to his lung, had a pulmonary embolism, had another surgery, then ended up with pneumonia back in the hospital. He's a new officer, doesn't have a lot of paid time off. The 100 Club responded with $5,000 for each of those officers in the first 24 hours. Hamilton went back in to the hospital again. We responded with another $5,000. It sustained them until they could get back on the job and do what they love doing and serving and protecting us. And those men and women don't have to do that. They choose to do that. They don't have to. And they serve and protect us every day. And I feel like it's the least we can do pay $100 a year, right. which is less than $8 a month to um, be there for them in their time of need. And what's interesting to me, because I, I know a lot of people will think about, um, you know, a, a police officer and know that there are a lot of benefits if, you know, that officer dies in the line of duty. I mean, clearly the state, the city are. takes care of them, takes care of their family. They absolutely All do. kinds of stuff kicks in. But it doesn't kick in immediately. And so it's that interim period, whether it's a few weeks, could be a few months, mm-hmm. you know, while everything's could being be figured year. out, it could be a long time. And right. then, you know, what do you do? So, yeah, it's mm-hmm. that that's what's fascinating to me about this concept, because it totally makes sense. Um, right. But, you know, for, for that not to have existed here until just a few years ago seems, seems right. crazy. And it's such a blessing to have so many supporters that now we can do that for the panhandle. And then we are we have just assisted Lubbock in learning about a 100 Club because they had the situation with Josh Bartlett right. and being shot on the scene there, and that was horrible. Then they had the accidents where the first responders were hit and killed on the highway in the icy roads, and they didn't have a 100 Club, so they relied hmm. on GoFundMes you know, by the families of those officers that were killed. And so they have started 100 Club West Texas. Okay. And so they will cover the Lubbock and the surrounding area. So um, we're just seeing it carry on a lot. But COVID, just like it did a number on a lot of things, it did a number on the 100 Club as well. Every fundraiser mm-hmm. that we had was canceled. And people were holding on to their money because of the uncertainties of where this was going to go next and if the shutdowns would continue and if they would return to things as they were. And it was tough on the 100 Club. So we had to make a hard decision as a board that we needed to hire a full-time paid executive director to go out and regain um, the funding so that we could sustain our organization or fold it. And so here I am. (laughs) Here I am. Geographically, you know, the Texas Panhandle 100 Club covers a lot of territory. And I wonder if that's unique nationally based on what you know. With most of them confined to cities or or at least large Mm -hmm. cities, is it unique for it to cover so many different counties? Not necessarily, especially like Houston. They have a large area and they cover the little suburbs around the Houston area, but they also cover the Department of Public Safety, the troopers for the entire state of Texas. Oh, wow. Okay. So... 
so that is a much larger geographic area. Than, yes, and than we're yours. just so trying to. We're all trying to do as much as we can with what we have, and so the more area we can cover, and the more benefits that we can provide, the better. That's that's our purpose. Has so. this club here had the opportunity to you know provide for families you know in some of the smaller towns, you know Plainview, Dumas, that sort of thing? We actually have, and more so than even locally. Hmm. Um, we paid a death benefit this year already. Well, I say this year in the last few months to Tom Hubler in Childress County. He was a deputy sheriff reserve, and he was helping someone on the side of the road, a motorist on the side of the road, had a heart attack wow. and died two weeks before his retirement. We took his wife, Lyle, a $20,000 check in the first 24 hours. Uh, it's very humbling to walk into the home of someone you don't know in front of a grieving family and provide relief that they wouldn't have otherwise had um, in appreciation. Do you do that personally? Like, Mm -hmm. is is that Mm -hmm. a job that you have to take? Yes. And a lot of board members joined me. And Mm -hmm. when I was a board member, I did the same. So I remember uh, Potter County, we took um, Officer Buckles, Sergeant Buckles. We met his son at the airport when he got off his of the plane for college and we handed him a $20,000 check. It started as 10, but with the cost of living, we doubled that uh, several years ago. And I know that just within the past few months with, um, with APD officers, there have been several that died of COVID complications. Yes. And and I have to be transparent. We have not paid those benefits. And here's why. Um, With the last COVID death of APD officer, that was the 20th, first responder to die in the Texas panhandle of COVID. Wow. And so we had a lot of those requests early on. We reached out to the other hundred clubs in the larger markets and said, hey, how how are you going to pay these when you don't know how many are to come? And it's hard to pin down where that was, where the exposure occurred and mm-hmm. and where where it all came to fruition. But we did not because after the first 15, we probably wouldn't be an organization. Right. All anymore. the organizations would have. Right. It's just so tragic that it's it is. hit law enforcement as much as it has. And they did provide, and I'm very thankful for this, there was a Senate bill that came up, Senate Bill 22, and it did deem that any first responder who came down, contracted COVID, and passed away from it would be considered line of duty death. Okay. And so they will get their state so they get and all the federal benefits. benefits since that Senate bill, which I believe was passed in September. I know that there are some additional things, like you mentioned, with um, you know, with SWAT equipment and stuff like that that the mm-hmm. One Hundred Club has participated in. You know, sometimes there are excess funds. Um, tell me about those opportunities. So what we do, that's kind of the third tier of our mission. We provide life-saving and life-protecting equipment in hopes that we never have to pay those other ones. But those mm-hmm. are obviously our priorities. We have purchased Jaws of Life for the city of Panhandle. There's where They cover such a large um, territory of highway, and they... Theirs were sold. They wouldn't cut through the newer vehicles, so oh, we wow. helped with that. Along Those with newer the vehicles city. are yeah, they're pretty sophisticated. Have so, so much safety stuff. That you I can't. know. So that was tough, and so we helped with that. We bought night vision goggles for Randall County, defibrillators for Potter County, and then APD approached us after the situation with Houston Gas down there in Pampa mm-hmm. when he was shot in the middle of that domestic dispute. And there were, they struggled to, a lot of officers put their lives at risk and firefighters to get him out of there to safety. 
and they didn't have a lot of protection and coverage. The APD swap vehicle was old mm -hmm. and not working well. They were towing it to and from the scene uh, to for protection and coverage. Yeah. And uh, they talked to us, Kyle Hawley and then Toby Hudson, and those guys are near and dear to our heart for what they do every day. And they reached out and said, hey, it's not in the city budget. We don't have the funds. They're not going to be able to have the funds for a couple of years. It takes a year to build one. And so we started a campaign, and we really thought it was going to be a lot easier than it was. But we didn't want to use membership dollars to do it. So we uh, called in a lot of favors that um, people would donate and do fundraisers for us and support. And it took us three and a half years, but we paid $200,000 of that $365,000 vehicle. Wow. And we did it all without touching our membership dollars. And it's just, it was really a gift to them to see them safe. And for us to be able to help with that was just such a huge blessing. So, so tell me, to, to kind of close this this section, tell me what you've learned. Um, because you're in the fundraising uh, world, you know, you've gone from dealing with larger companies and big businesses with Coffee Memorial Blood Center. Now you've got a lot of individual donors with uh, the 100 Club. What have you learned about the generosity of this area and the people that you work with because you're in a position of asking them for money? Um, what, what does that tell you about people here? I think we have the most giving community anywhere around. And I mentioned that earlier uh, with coffee. You know, when you tell them there's a need, they respond and they have responded. I think I've everyone I've called on hasn't hesitated once they know what the 100 Club is to mm -hmm. give. And uh, we had a surprise donation that we have not received the check yet, but uh, so I have to leave it nameless, but we had a local bank call and say, hey, we want to help finish off the balance of that SWAT vehicle and we're going to give you over $50,000 wow. gift. And so you talk about making someone's day. Exactly. That makes someone's day. And I think the part of it, it all goes back to relationships and communication. And if you have the relationships and you communicate the need, we live in such a wonderful area that the people are going to respond, whether it's a small donation or a large donation. I've never met Trevor Cavanis, and uh, he was helping with a fundraiser for a firefighter who had cancer. Just so happened he went to church with his brother, who's in law enforcement. And Trevor, is in the, he has entertained a call with me, having never met him, and is willing to help us with some equipment needs. And so... It's just a wonderful place to be, and I wouldn't want to raise funds or be, build relationships anywhere else. Hey, Amarillo is supported this week by Blue Handle Publishing, a locally owned indie publisher with titles available from local authors like Charles D'Amico and Andrew Brandt. But Blue Handle also includes its Book Puma editing services platform and has just recently launched Book Puma Online. Now, this is a really unique educational spot on the internet if you're a writer. It features online courses taught by award-winning authors, editors, and industry professionals. To learn more, you can visit bookpumaonline.com and for 50% off of its courses, use the discount code HEYAMARELLO50. That's HEYAMARELLO50 for 50% off courses at Book Puma Online. Okay, I'm back with Suzanne Talley of the 100 Club. Suzanne, this is the part of the show I call 8 Straight. 8 Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas. 
and his collection includes XIT ranch photos from the late 1890s. This ranch was a 3 million acre ranch and was enclosed by 6,000 miles of barbed wire, which would have stretched from LA to New York and back with some extra barbed wire left over. Wow. Uh, so you can, yeah, that's a lot. Um, you can learn more about that at panhandleplains.org. Okay, so this part of the show is called Eight Straight. I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. Your job as my guest is to answer those. Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> and as much detail as you want to, but okay. uh, I'll start with one. And we've talked about this a little bit, but what's one thing the pandemic has revealed to you about local people? Well, I think I've said it many times. I had to think about this because we just live in an area where the most wonderful people in the world, you know, people are generous and giving and they stand shoulder to shoulder when tragedy happens and they make it happen. And and that's the greatest thing I can say about this. It's the people. The people make our area what it is. And when they say the panhandle of Texas is different, mm -hmm. you really don't know what they mean until you live here and you work here and you see it. But we're different here. And we stick together, and it's something to be really proud of. Apart from wind, what does this area have too much of? Politics. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's not a, just this area. I know. It's everywhere. But um, it seems easy to me to do the right thing for the right reasons mm -hmm. for the good of the people. And I think sometimes politics gets in the way of that. And I think if we threw a lot of those politics out, we'd get a lot further. Do you find that even getting in the way, you know, from a nonprofit perspective, whether it's seeking blood donors, whether it's, you know, working with police and firefighters, even those places can have some. Sometimes. Mm -hmm, I do. And I wish it weren't so. Yeah. Politics are divisive. Yeah. And uh, we we all have our opinions about things. And that's our right to love and respect each other, even when we disagree. And I think we've gotten away from that. And we need to come back together as people and love one another and respect one another, even if we disagree. I agree with that. Mm -hmm. What does this area not have enough of? Concerts. Okay. Yeah, I love I love music. When I was young, I went to every concert I think there was uh, against my mother's will most of the time. But um, I love music of all types, and I wish we had a lot more concerts and live music. And we've our... we've got a. A decent live music scene if you want smaller bands, mm -hmm. smaller venues. Which are wonderful. Which are great. I love following Andy Chase around and exactly. listening to his yeah. music. But yes, I agree. When you get to the uh, 3,000, 5,000, 9,000 yeah, concert goers, we, we tend to miss those. Maybe we'll get a new Civic Center one of well, these days. That's, that's the dream. <laughs> I think it, that's going to be necessary before we get those kinds I of concerts. I agree with that. Hey, I voted yes. <laughs> How do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area? Great place to live and work, raise a family, conservative values, and we have the greatest sunsets and sunrises mm -hmm. to be seen. And you can even catch a great moon and stars sometimes. Yeah, I agree. I love that. I'm a sky watcher. Good. I so. I love this time of year because you can catch the sunrise without having to get up at a terrible hour. That's exactly you know, right. You can wait and the sunset. <laughs> sunset, yeah. Um, 5.30, I feel like I should be at Luby's or something. Yeah, you can get both of those within about a 10-hour period, so <laughs> right. that's really nice. What's your favorite neighborhood in Amarillo? That's a tough one, and I, I looked at that question. I grew up on the north side of town. Mm -hmm have a lot of friends that I made over there, a lot of great memories. I lived in Puckett West for 31 years. That's where I lived when I was married, when I raised my son, had the greatest neighbors in the world, made some of the best friends I've ever had. 
and now I live in the Greenways in the nicest home I've lived in in my life uh, that I provided for for myself. Hmm. So there's a lot of memories there. There's a lot of pride in all three of those neighborhoods that I have. Um, so I'd say it's going to have to be all three because okay. they all share my heart. That's so. a diverse set of three. So I appreciate that. Yeah. And speaking of the Greenways, that's one of the best places to catch a, a sunset. In I agree the city. with that. One of the best neighborhoods for that sort of thing. What's your favorite local restaurant? I love Paleo's Pizza. Okay. I'm allergic to dairy. And uh, you can go there and Paul Turner and his crew will mm -hmm. make me a cheeseless cauliflower pizza so I can eat. It feels like you're eating bad, but you're really not. Yeah. And so I like that. And I have a lot of friends that like to go there. So it's a great place to gather. Okay. What's your favorite local coffee shop? Well, I don't drink coffee. I'm more of a tea drinker. That's my caffeine. But uh, when I go with my friends, they usually want to go to Roasters. So mm -hmm. that's good with me. Okay. And when was the last time you visited Cadillac Ranch? It's been a couple of years, but we did a pink out All out right. there. And we had a gentleman that had a, I don't even know what you call it, an air sprayer or right. yeah, generator a big paint or sprayer. And we pinked out all the Cadillacs and we tied ribbons on them. And we honored a young lady who had passed away several years ago of cancer at 16 years old. Okay. And uh, she would have been graduating high school and we did a pink out out there and for her family and we did a professional photo shoot. And that's how we honored them. They were an ambassador for coffee, Madison Taylor Niebush and hmm. the Niebush family. And we pinked that out and raised some money and tied balloons and, and made some good memories. That always makes me laugh because I, I know a lot of organizations or businesses will do something like that because it's it's great for, you know, the marketing, the photos are cool, and people always get upset because like, how dare you paint all those Cadillacs pink? I and know. I'm always just like, man, it was pink probably for about 30 minutes. That's exactly right. And then they right. went right back to whatever they used to be. So. That is exactly right. I did have a cool thing happen, um, and we're still friends on Facebook today. We we um, also painted them for Life Gift back when they were here years ago. Mm -hmm. And we did organ donation and blood donation. We did a campaign out there. And then a famous photographer that also does cinematography in California came through, and he put lights on that at night, and he took pictures. Of course, they'd been painted over right. some, but they were the light green and the blue and the red, and they had a message of organ and blood donation. And he found me on Facebook, and he sent me that photograph. Wow. And uh, anyway, we became friends on Facebook, and, and he's done some fascinating things and told the story of the World War II vets in photography and sent me one of those. So it was just so hmm. strange that from that experience at Cadillac Ranch, he found me and sent me that photo, and now I'm learning of all the things he's doing. Well, I think anytime you get one of those unique photos where the cars are painted all one color or in some, you know, very intentional set of colors, that's just so rare because it doesn't last at all. Yeah. And so anybody who has those photos, those are the rarest photos of I know. It's of so the fun. art installation. So okay, well Suzanne, that uh, concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guest to endorse something. So what's one thing you would want listeners to know about or to experience? Well because I believe the Hunter Club is one of the best kept secrets in the panhandle, I would ask people to support it. Okay. I would ask people to support our first responders, firefighters and law enforcement. There are all kinds of first responders. Our nurses and doctors are first responders. Our blood collection people at coffee are first responders. And we honor them and appreciate their work. And I don't want to discredit them by not including them, but I do want people to join the 100 Club for $100 a year. And I want them to tell our first responders Hey, we appreciate you and we love you and we have your back. 
And you can do that by going to texaspanhandle100club.org. A few simple clicks and you become a member and you get to stand behind the men, men and women behind the badge. And donate blood. And donate blood. <laughs> I got to keep that going. That's true. Okay. Suzanne Talley, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. This was so much fun. Thanks for letting me share. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Suzanne for the interview. You can learn more about the 100 Club at texaspanhandle100club.org. Thanks also to Angelina Marie for editing this episode and to my sponsors, Blue Handle Publishing and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum. If you like this podcast, and since you've listened this far, I'm going to assume you did, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Leave a review if you like it. I always love that. As usual, this podcast exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamorello. Heyamorello's executive producers include Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Barbara and Jim Witten, Jess Heredia, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, and Wilson Lemieux. This has been episode 230. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.